First of all, last week, for those of you who were able to come over there to the question time, thank you. The spirit in the room was great. There were some great questions asked. Um, I have said this over and over, but one of the things I love most about new community is the openness and the authenticity of the community and also the ability and the space and the freedom to ask questions and to ask the hard questions and that we are not scared of those, but that is how we engage. and. I think it's really beautiful. So thank you for being here. Um, just a quick, I am going to be moderating this time, keeping John and Russ in line, um, making sure they say all the right answers. Um, yeah, thanks. thanks. <laughs> um, here's what we're seeking to do. We are here because we want to engage in this. We want to ask questions. Um, we are going to answer as many questions as we can. We will not have all of the answers today, just so you know. And there may be questions that we say, we don't know, we are still exploring this, um, but that's okay. This is not some, a conversation that needs to be figured out right here and right now. The time limit for this is 1.30, we will be done. If at any point before that, you are free to leave. Don't feel like you are stuck here until 1.30, but that is when we will end. Here is the, basically the rules. We were, out, all week long we've been, um, people have been emailing questions. We have a whole list of questions and people asked questions last week in here. Those are the questions we are answering today. So. If you have another question, Brooke has some paper. She will have some paper. I don't know where she went, but there is some paper in the back. We'll pass it out here in a second. If you have more questions, you can write those down. We're going to be meeting again on December 8th, and we will continue to answer more questions then. If you have a clarifying question where you're just saying, hey, wait, I don't, real quick, what did you mean by that? That is totally fine. Raise your hand. You can ask that. But if it's a whole new question on a new topic, we're going to answer that later because we want to honor the questions that have come in already throughout the week. Um, here are a couple things that came from last week's time, and I just want you to hear a couple statements. Again, these are reasons why I love our community. Here's a few things that were said. One woman said, thank you. This topic is the reason why my kids never go to church anymore. Jesus welcomes all. Somebody else said, I think we have a wonderful skill set here and a tremendous grace to bring into the community. I am a believer in equality and non-non-marginalization for everyone. It's a, it's a continual walk trying to know what I know about it and think about it. As I love Christ and follow this path, I'm trying to figure this out. And here's what I'm going to tell you. We're all trying to figure it out too. So as we enter into this time, I just ask that we are entering into a time of humility and recognizing that we all are just trying to figure all of this out. So without further ado, you guys will welcome up Russ and John. Uh, yep. Um, can I pray as we begin? Um, we want the spirit present, already is, but we want it to be felt uh, and do our best to, to listen as we share. Uh, God, we... I want to pause momentarily because sometimes we just keep moving forward and we're not reflective and we're not listening and we're not in a posture where we can hear from you. And so I pray for John and for myself that as we try to answer these questions, as we enter into this conversation more, that you would uh, give wisdom, that you would give uh, clarity with our words, that we would be able to articulate uh, what has been um, something that we have wrestled with for a long time and the staff and elders have prayed and fasted about for years. Uh, and I pray that um, 
Yeah, that you would just show up in a unique way as we uh, work through this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, part of why we decided to have it in here instead of going into the chapel is because uh, it felt like last week when people asked questions, it was really hard to remember what were the questions that were asked. And even though we typed it up, you could see looks on faces like, what was the question we were talking about? or what? So we're actually going to try to put all the questions up on the screen uh, so that we can go through them. Um, before we get to the questions, I just wanted to create a few statements that I think are important for us. And, uh, and John and I are going to try to uh, jump in on each other and interrupt and all that kind of stuff. We might not do that initially, but uh, throughout. And again, raise your hand if you have a clarifying question. Uh, but as far as new questions, I think um, Julie might be getting material uh, for us. Uh, so first off, I want to start with a, a bit of a quote from Luke Timothy Johnson. Um, Brooke, do we have the quote? Perfect. Okay. Uh, It says this, we must let go of the desire for theology to be a finished product of complete conceptual symmetry. If theology is in fact the attempt to understand living faith, then it must always be an unfinished process for the data continues to come in as the living God persists in working through the lives of people and being revealed in their stories. We must let go of any pretense of closing the New Testament within some comprehensive, all-purpose, singular reading, which reduces its complexity to simplicity. We must recognize our attempts to reduce multiplicity to unity. We must recognize our tendency to seek a stable package of meaning that we can then apply to other situations or fit within our systematic theological constructs so that... Ideally, we never really read the texts again. What he's getting at is that theology is ongoing, right? Uh, we would believe that theology is what would, could be defined as a pilgrim journey. Uh, what I mean by that is that it's a discipline represented by the metaphor of journey rather than destination. So much of Greek thinking and so much of the church's posture has been um, to, to have it not be so much like this narrative, this journey that the, the Jewish people would describe it, uh, and more as like these definitive black and white statements. And so think of theology as a journey rather than a destination. And as I mentioned in the talk, uh, we've been taking a biblical theological framework, a narrative look at theology. Uh, we've been working off of a redemptive hermeneutic, so like this idea that the text keeps moving us toward greater redemption. Uh, And this topic obviously is multi-layered and has a lot of complexity to it. So that leads to my second little point to start. We could absolutely be wrong. There will be things we could say that uh, either are not perceived the way we intend for them to be communicated or just might actually be wrong because it's our best attempt and best guess as elders at the community to offer uh, suggestions. Um, So... I encourage you to listen to the Spirit, and as you should do with any talk given in church on a Sunday, you should always test it, right? You should always go back, talk to the community, wrestle with the text, listen to the Spirit, pray, and don't just accept what's said, wrestle with it, because that's what we're all called to do. And then uh, last but not least, we have altered some of the questions that have come in. Here's how we've altered them. One, there were some with spelling problems. No offense to anyone who sent them in. 
Um, so we sought to correct those. Uh, some, uh, <clears throat> we eliminated the context of the question. So it was like, I was wondering, blah, 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 blah. And then there was like, and so my question is, so some of those we eliminated the full context. If the context was important enough, uh, then we kept parts of it that would help you understand why the question was asked. Um, we also sought to carve out any language that might be perceived as hurtful in any way. It was not, I don't think any uh, language was intended to be, but it could be perceived potentially that way, so we edited that. And then we combined some questions. So if you're looking and go, I didn't really see my question or the way it was worded, that's probably why for those particular reasons. All right? Uh, so we're going to jump into the questions, and uh, here we go. What led to this discussion and decision? Like, how did the elders and the staff get into this in the first place? Why go there? Uh, so in complete transparency, this is how it began. Uh, five years ago, uh, I went on sabbatical, and when I left, the elders uh, tasked me with several things. So I presented a bit of a proposal. This is what I would like to accomplish over sabbatical. This is what the elders then were asking of me. And during that time, they said, we want you to come back with what does the church need to talk about, address, figure out in the next five years. And I came back with two things. Uh, thing number one was we've got to figure out what to do with the building. At the time, the rent just kept going up and up and up, and the space we were at over by Noli, while it was fantastic, it didn't provide the opportunity to partner with other ministries the way we had and the way we continued to dream about. And uh, I had no idea that this would be the result of that. Um, that we would be moved by the Spirit into this location. Uh, the second big thing that I came back with was we've got to talk about this particular issue, and I want to talk about it um, before uh, there was ever a time that the church community or the staff was put on the spot. And what I mean by that is no one had come asking for marital counseling, no one had come being asked to be married, um, and so it gave us this space to say, well, let's talk about this before somebody does come and before then the community as a whole is confronted with this idea of like, are we for this? And then that quickly turns to, are we for this couple or are we against this couple? And we just didn't ever want to be in that space. So we started uh, thinking about it and praying about it about five years ago, a little less than, and, uh, and here we are today. All right, uh, second question drum roll. Are there any other churches that are going through a journey like this that we have talked to? I'll answer that first. And then particularly Spokane related. Uh, so first part of that is yes. There are several churches outside of our area that we have been in a uh, long and lengthy conversation with. They've either been on the journey for a while. They've been wrestling with it. We've gotten counsel from other churches and pastors. Uh, we've even spoke with uh, other members of churches in other contexts like Denver, Portland, etc., cetera, uh, that their church has been going through a similar journey. So we've gotten a lot of feedback in that regard. Uh, to answer your second question, Spokane-related, the answer to that is no. Uh, it should be technically yes and no. So here's why. Um, Locally, there are really not many churches entering into this conversation, with the exception of those that are denominationally based, meaning that the Lutheran church said everybody is going to agree with this overall Lutheran decision, 
or like the Presbyterian church. And while churches have discussed it, it's either are we going to go along with the denomination as a whole or are we just going to stay where we're at? That's been the length of the conversation locally, with the exception of uh, one of our church plants uh, has actually kind of walked through this process uh, already. Now, the rest of our conversation has not been um, public, the rest of our discussion, and again, for primary two reasons. One, uh, whenever you're with pastors and you bring up anything like this, right, uh, it either A, doesn't go well, or B, doesn't stay there, okay? Meaning if I was talking with John, he's the pastor of the church, you know, up the road, and I'm like, hey, this is what we're talking about, you know. Before, like, I get home, I'm getting a call that basically is like, oh, so I hear the church is going to be, right? So we didn't feel like it would give us the space as leadership to actually talk and pray and think through this idea. Um, and so we didn't speak about it locally. The people that we did speak about it locally with, the pastors, uh, this is the other reason why we didn't speak about it publicly. Um, I'll say this carefully. Our, we have lots of pastors that are friends in town. There are lots of pastors that are friends in town that would love to be having this conversation, but their job is on the line. If they bring it up, they're fired. If they start to talk about it, it it's a, a not, like it's, it, that's the end of the road, right? Um, both in churches as well as in nonprofits. So it is a culturally sensitive subject. And so off the record, we've had a lot of conversations locally. None of those have gone anywhere in terms of like declaring anything just because pastors are weird. Okay. Any, um, there, that's where we're at. Next question. Um, so this question, uh, the answer to that is we are always excited when people want to learn more about Jesus. And so, um, I, <laughs> Russ said I can answer this one because I made some comments the last time I talked at church about, hey, we really need to be thoughtful about reading our Bibles and learning about Jesus. I think that's all I would say about this, is mm -hmm. that people that don't know a lot about Jesus, I would like them to meet him um, and experience him in some really powerful ways. I actually think um, what's really interesting about this question I dare say, challenging most of us in the room, is I actually think it speaks to the fact that many of us desire to be on fire for evangelism in the ways that we used to be when we were younger. And we have felt like there's a whole group of folks that we can't invite to know Jesus. And so some of you who are now, you know, cynical hipsters in your late 30s and 40s are like, I don't do evangelism. No, you do. <laughs> <laughs> and what's gotten you so excited about this is that this is a group of folks that maybe we know in our everyday life that we really want to say, come and meet Jesus and get to know about him. And so uh, that has always been the role of God's people and will continue to be the role of God's people. Um, and the idea that we don't know a lot about the scripture or traditions or things like that, that's not a problem for this issue. That's a problem for all issues. And so mm -hmm. that's always something that we are constantly trying to think about and, and care for. Um, that's good. Uh, next question. Uh, how can we encourage the conversation around diversity and discourage fragmentation? What can we do as people to discourage this fragmentation from occurring? I'm just going to offer a couple quick little uh, bullet point ideas. Uh, there's, I'm sure, a lot more that you could add uh, to this answer. But first, I think you've got to be willing to listen. Uh, if we're not a people who are willing to listen to each other, uh, it's going to be impossible to actually have a conversation. A conversation implies it goes two ways. 
Um, ask questions, don't make statements. Too often we want to be people who make statements, declare definitive things. Uh, asking questions is an invitation. It's an invitation to dialogue. It's an invitation to say, I might not know everything. It's an invitation to go, I want to know more of what you think, right? Those are important things. Um, I think treat one another with mutual respect. Treat everybody in the conversation with great dignity. Uh, those are, again, uh, simple things, uh, but I think really important. Uh, another one would be place limits on the way you speak toward each other, okay? Um, it's fully acceptable to say, you know, I'm not sure I believe that same thing, or I don't see it that way. Those are great. But to say, like, you don't read the Bible, or uh, you don't value the Bible, or what you believe is wrong, or um, somehow, like, Satan has got a hold of you and deceived you, or something, whatever, like, any of that is just really out of place, right? It isn't helpful for unity. It isn't helpful for moving the conversation forward. Um, and then I think last idea, and again, you could add more to this, but realizing that um, we cannot and should not bind the conscience of another person. If you don't feel like it's okay for you to do X, Y, or Z uh, that's in the doctrine or in the opinion category, uh, it is not your responsibility to then tell someone else that, well, based on what I perceive, I'm going to convict you to hold my conviction. I don't think is. we'll talk more about that in Romans 14, but I don't think that's the posture uh, we're intended to take. All right, those are just a few ideas. There's way more we could add. Next. Okay, so uh, I'm going to answer this in two ways. The first one um, is that as we enter into conversations about issues and things that w which with, with which we may be less familiar, um, it's okay to ask for clarification about how you should speak about something or to ask somebody else's insight that maybe is a member of a particular community that you're speaking with or about. Um, and so we extend grace and mercy to each other as we learn new vocabularies and new ideas. So that's the first answer to that question. The second one I think is actually uh, one that is maybe more profound. Um, and that is something... That was obvious. I just, can we read the questions out loud just in case? I don't know if they're recording it or not, but just in case. Yeah. Maybe it was my thing. <laughs> all of this is so uncomfortable. Have you noticed I had to get two of these because I had too many notes and I was like, and all my chairs are wobbly? It is what it is. It is. <laughs> if you've ever had me in class, this is like hitting on all of my OCD issues at the moment. <laughs> Basically crippled Russ. Um, how can we be more sensitive to the people in our midst as a community, to our gay brothers and sisters among us, person to person and through teaching, communicating? Um, <laughs> please refer to answer one in the tape. Uh, answer two, uh, I think it's something that has been really made clear to me by my incredible partner Sarah and other friends, which is, um, I can only speak for myself, but I have very, I, I don't believe I've ever had a conversation where somebody started crying because we were talking about Levitical law. That has not occurred in my experience in the world, that someone was reading the Old Testament and started bawling. But what has created people being uncomfortable is how do these issues divide families and friends and things like that. And so I think really at the heart of this question is um, something that we've been talking about for a long time as a community, which is how do we live in, how do we honor each other? 
how do we live into grace? How do we demonstrate mercy in these moments of tension and discord and discomfort? Um, and that continues to be something that we are going to always pursue as a community. Um, I think probably, I'll only speak for myself, but probably what I want new community to be known for um, is not only a place where everyone is welcome, but where we are encouraged to be brave and not afraid of the world. Hmm. We, ours is a kingdom um, that we are beginning now to see, and we will see it in its fullness, um, but we get to live as citizens of that kingdom already. Um, and so uh, I think the answer to this is something along the lines of, um, the breaking of bread at the table of communion in the midst of war is never perfect. And that's the story that we inherited, right? Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, why was the congregation not allowed to vote on a doctrinal decision? I'm going to answer this in just a couple ways. Uh, number one, um, we, a new community, don't necessarily have what would be defined as membership. Uh, therefore, it would make it pretty difficult to decipher if the vote passed. Um, because we don't have it in our bylaws, we don't have a majority decision or, uh, you know, any of those kinds of things, it would be really difficult. Second, um, the primary reason why we would never vote on something like this, or one of the primary reasons, is because a vote creates a binary decision. The vote typically has winners and losers. A vote has people who are for it or against it. Uh, and what we have really sought to do is to approach this as a community in a way where we're looking to create a, a space of peace that allows those who might be opposed to same-sex relationships to sit alongside of those who are for same-sex relationships. And I think that's really impossible to do in a voting context because instantly someone goes, well, my decision lost, and that means I'm out because the rest of the group decided to go a different direction. And I just think that's um, the opposite of the way that uh, God desires his church to be, John 17 that the church would be one, and after the church is one, then people will know that, uh, that I am the Lord, right? Uh, and then the last idea is we talked about the circles, right? Dogma, doctrine. Uh, we, again, just reiterating from the talk, uh, we don't believe that this is a dogma issue. It's not creedal, salvific, central to all of universal understanding of, of Christianity. So if it's not, then it's what would be defined as like either a disputable matter or it sits within doctrine or opinion. I know some in the room hold that it sits in doctrine, fantastic. And I know some that it's opinion, also fantastic. Um, again, if we did a vote, we, I guess we wouldn't because we don't feel like any uh, non-creedal idea would be worthy of a vote, right? Like we wouldn't vote on um, the color of the room or baptism or um, even things that like race. We wouldn't vote on that, right? Because um, it's not creedal, not central. Okay, do you want to add to that anyway? If you, if you don't want to add, great. No, I think that's, I think that's good. Okay, yeah. good. Next. Do <laughs> you want to read it or do you want me to? Okay. <laughs> Has there been somebody with the inside scoop that we've talked to? Uh, have we gained the expertise of someone in the LGBTQ community to advise us? Is there anyone we know that we could bring on as a go-to in this conversation and be known as a knowledge bank? Um, so we, we, as Russ and I were preparing and talking about this stuff, and, and it's not really Russ and I, it's the whole elder team and things like that. Um, I think the answer to this question is, um, 
when a church decides to talk about an issue is not the same as when those in the church have been talking about issues. So this question assumes uh, I've been in higher education now for 20 years. So um, those of you that are teachers or in any sort of uh, profession where you're introduced to lots of different kinds of folks, which is about everybody, um, it's probably unlikely that you've avoided having conversations around uh, sexual identity, right? Um, so I think that becomes even more pronounced and profound for our pastoral staff who have been mentoring people for decades that have wrestled with these issues, right? And so the idea of what is our sort of knowledge bank as a group, um, we have uh, Michelle is one of our elders who is incredibly uh, aware and competent and educated around issues of identity. Um, our pastoral staff is constantly working and studying. Um, and then on top of all that, we all have very valued, trusted confidants that are members of the LGBT community that we go and talk with and um, care about and um, that advise us in this situation. So I think the, I think we sort of, uh, there's a, I appreciate the spirit of the question, which is how are we wrestling and getting insight, which is really important. You never want a person to stand in as the token representation of any group. So a go-to person that we would somehow like parade up and say, hey, we had a question about this issue. So um, we, would, we would really be hesitant to do that about anything. Um, and so instead what I could say is that there is a robust network of folks and friends that we have been working with for years. Some of us, and not all in Spokane, just from other parts of our lives and different places where we've lived that we have been sort of talking to and, and working through some of these questions with, um, and we will continue to do so. Does that seem? Seems great. Uh, next question. I know that next week Russ will be tackling some of these scriptural references to all this, but I would really appreciate some other resources that you as a leadership have read. Could a list of resources be made available for those wrestling with where they land on this issue? Fantastic question. Um, first off, hopefully this morning helped. Hopefully this morning was uh, part of a movement toward uh, continuing to wrestle with the scriptures and uh, determine what it is uh, that they are saying. And then um, this website that we put up there uh, has been, we have been um, adding every talk from each Sunday to it. Any talk that I reference has been added as well. Uh, all of the illustrations that uh, we've used throughout the talks have been up there uh, in addition. Uh, this morning or sometime soon, Brooke might actually be working on it right now, uh, the next talk will get uploaded, the next illustrations, all of that. Um, on there, there's actually a list of other resources. So there's a document by N.T. Wright on how is the Bible authoritative. It's a good explanation of the way we see the value and the authority of the scriptures. Um, it's a theological paper. If you're interested in reading it, go for it. Uh, there's a book called Us Versus Us on there by Andrew Marin. He wrote a book also a long time ago called Love is an Orientation. Uh, I would recommend both of those. He came to Whitworth, Ryan, how was it a year ago, two years ago? Three years ago now. Uh, so Ryan and I went to that um, three years ago and uh, did a fantastic presentation. The book is Us Versus Us. So we've put a few resources on there. Uh, why we haven't put an extensive library of resources is primarily because uh, we know that the uh, typical way that people approach those resources is to just listen to the ones that affirm or confirm the bias I already have about it. And so while we would list 
ones on both sides, it would, again, maybe create this like, well, I listened to this and you didn't, and, right? So we decided to only put things on there that were more neutral and that allow all of us to sit in the same space and come to the middle and figure out how did we arrive at the position we did or how do we think about this or who do we know that we're loving in these ways, right? So um, that was our intent. If you go, man, I really want to figure out a different idea than the one I'm wrestling with, you have, I would love to give you, I've got four pages full probably or more um, that over the last uh, four or five years that we have read, watched, studied every single one of those. So we'd be more than happy to uh, pass some of that on uh, to you. Do you want to add to that at all? Uh, I would say um, I, I occupy a relatively charismatic space in the faith traditions of new community. So I bring that up to say if I recommend a book to you, you should know that I'm playing like some kind of like charismatic game. So if I recommend a book, it's because I'm thinking about your life and saying, I think. Um, so if you would ever want to like talk more about resources, I think all of us on, uh, in leadership have a, sim a similar view of we, we care about where you're at in your own sort of walk and what you're thinking about, and we'd want to recommend texts that sort of address where you're at and what you're thinking about. I would add this uh, caveat. Um, we read, we've been and continue to read all kinds of things about all kinds of issues all the time. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff, I think, my time at New Community has helped me understand that the things that we tend to be most compelled towards are those uh, treatments of issues that put people at the center, regardless of where they come down. I love, you guys, I love N.T. Wright. I don't, I wouldn't get a tattoo, but if I did, it would just be his name. <laughs> um, and some of you know that, you think I'm joking. It's, I'm not joking. I have a book, everything is just underlined, okay? Um, I love him. Um, we, do, we don't end up at the same place on this issue. Um, now, he doesn't, he's not aware of that. I haven't communicated. <laughs> he hasn't returned any of my fan emails. Um, uh, but, uh, but I bring that up to say the, thing, the reason why I'm, I continue to be compelled by folks like him um, is that he puts people at the center of all of this, right? These are not abstract ideas that are interesting to wrestle with, which I, I, am, I am often prone to do. Like, I like ideas, and I can often go, oh, that's right, that's a human. Um, and I think the things that we've been most compelled by as a leadership team, regardless of where people fall in terms of decision, are those folks that put people at the center, like our brothers and our sisters and our sons and our daughters um, at the center and say, we're talking about real folks that we love. And I think that would be the last thing I'd say about resources. Good. Let's uh, move on to the next question. Uh, Julie does have slips of paper. If, um, again, if a question has come up, like an additional question, um, please write it down. If a clarification, so if you wanted to know more about John's uh, desire for an NT right tattoo, feel free to raise your hand and we'll bring any clarification to what's been said. Uh, because we don't want what we're saying to be confusing in any way, okay? Also, uh, you've already noticed people are feeling, the fr feel free whenever uh, to get up and leave, get up and stretch, um, go to the bathroom, whatever you need. Um, we're here for, you know, a while, and you, you can stay as long or as little as you'd like, okay? Um, next question. When this one came in, I, I absolutely love this question. Is Newcom going to advertise? Will there be outward communication about the openness and acceptance? Um, my initial answer is it's called gossip. We don't really, 
have to do much advertising at all. And if you, if you think I'm kidding about gossip, I'm not, okay? Um, this week alone, I've gotten calls from Denver, texts from Portland, Pennsylvania. I know people are listening to it in Jersey. I know people are listening to it in Indiana. Uh, I, there are local pastors that have told group leaders here they're listening, that their whole staff is listening. Um, we, again, we don't have to advertise. Word of mouth is doing a great job. And the second thing I would say about that is, have we ever advertised? <laughs> so it, it wouldn't probably be something we would start now, right? We don't advertise. Uh, it's been probably more than a decade since we've even put out something like, hey, we're having Easter, because everyone has Easter, right? Um, so we're not going to, like, advertise. That is not our intention. Uh, there will be, obviously, communities in town uh, that we'll know or we'll have a conversation with. Um, we will definitely have a conversation with the Alliance at Whitworth. Uh, we want to have students there know and be able to interact with us in ways that uh, are really positive for students at Whitworth or Gonzaga. Uh, so beyond that, though, no, I don't think you need to worry about, um, a, like, I don't know, advertising of some sort, okay? Uh, hopefully that's um, clarifying enough. Moving on. Yes. Uh, it, it, oh, sorry, someone were asking about, that's a great clarifying question. Yeah, John, you wanna answer that? Uh, that would be our sort of LGBT group at Whitworth, that, those students in that club. So we'd want them. They're always asking about are there churches that we could go and feel like it's their home. Great. Is that good? Thank you for asking that. Again, feel free if there's other clarifying questions. I'll read this one. Suggestions. Uh, when we engage and meet new people, new visitors of the church, how do we talk about being on this journey? I had this highlighted in there. Yeah. Um, do we uh, want to answer it? Let's try. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no one say anything. Um, I think we, um, I think this is, again, one of these things where I go, man, you like, you lean into it, and you can lean into it in a couple different ways. One, you can be, uh, again, you can have that part of you that's going to pull out your Petra albums and be like, yeah, we're back to evangelism, just like high school. I'm loving this. I'm going to invite all my coworkers. Um, which I, it's in there. I feel it. Um, uh, so that'd be one thing is that this is this exciting time to talk with folks maybe that you have not, um, that you've had good conversations, but there hasn't been that sort of like, hey, you should come hang out with me on Sunday. And now maybe that's what we get to do. So we get to invite people that are part of the LGBT community to a place to worship and experience and be introduced or reintroduced to Jesus or... Uh, just to uh, feel comfortable. Uh, I think the other answer would be um, if you are not in a place where you feel like this would be uh, something that you would want to say, man, I'm all on board on all of this stuff, I think you can say I'm part of a community that's okay wrestling with uh, hard ideas together and we don't sort of uh, break up because of it, right? And so we are a community that in the face of a culture that's basically operates entirely on fear, right? Uh, every time you check your Facebook feed, remember that you're doing it out of fear. Mm. Just a side note, it's another sermon at some point. Um, 
Yeah. Um, but we live in this culture of fear, and so to invite people into a place where we are trying our best not to live in fear is really beautiful also, and that we can disagree and wrestle with stuff, and we're going to do it with grace and mercy and always attempting to hold peace as the value that uh, is evidence of a community that's chasing after Jesus. Um, I think the, that w- those would be some of the ways that I would think about that question. Yeah, let me add one thing. Um, it was probably uh, three, four months ago, someone emailed Julie, said, hey, I, um, I'm in town. I was curious, is your church, and use the language of open and affirming, and Julie um, did the classic new community move, which is, um, why don't you just come hang out with our community, and then we don't need to answer the question. Let's just all be together, and then you could see if this is a place that you feel welcome in or not. And um, so they came, and they decided that they would start asking people, which I was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. So they went up to the first person, and they're like, hey, is a new community open and affirming? And they're like, "Uh, I think so, yeah. And then they went to the next person, and they're like, oh, I don't think so. I don't know. And then they went to the next, like, and they got like a 50-50 vote on this thing. And I was like, fantastic, right? Because what it shows is that, again, the church is not an organization. We are bred to think from the beginning that everything is like a business, and everything runs, and there's a hierarchy to all of it. And so everyone has to all believe the same thing, say the same thing, do the same thing because it's the company line or the corporate pledge or whatever. It's not. The church is the people, you, me, right, all of us. And each of us has wildly radical ideas, also normal, simple ideas, and we're all wrestling with faith. And so to be in that space together is what we want to do. And uh, everything we've tried to communicate uh, from up front in this entire series is to say, if you've been on one side of this conversation, that's okay. Understand there's others here too, and we can be together, right? And if we can keep um, leaning into that, then I think we're going where new community really wants to go. Cool? Uh, Next. How do we extend deep grace to people that maybe don't hold the same opinion? Uh, Education on how to extend grace to someone you don't share the same opinion with. Uh, how to handle people that are adamantly opposed to questioning or having this conversation. Uh, how can we have a thoughtful dialogue with people that disagree with you? These are all questions that kind of are encompassing the same idea, right? Um, it, it, man, these are really, this is where kind of the rubber meets the road, right? It's where it gets challenging for some people. Um, obviously, everything that I said before in terms of how do you have a thoughtful and honest conversation with people and maintain dignity and respect and listen, all of that. Uh, But second, I think you can only really control your side of the conversation, right? That's all you can be responsible for. Um, And so I think, one, starting at a place where you acknowledge that all I can bring to the conversation is what I've been wrestling and thinking with. And so if you start by yourself with listening and asking questions rather than defending or coming down on one side or the other, then I think we're already off to a good start, right? That that's how we begin to have deep grace for one another. Um, I would also say that I have found in this conversation, uh, like most conversations, that there's like differences of opinion. Uh, that sometimes what is maybe the best approach is to try to add weight or to give uh, affirmation to their particular idea or perspective. Because 
the perspective that each of us comes from is one, usually from a lived experience of some sort, but two, there is truth and beauty in that likely as well, right? And so if I can find what I can agree with, if I can find and affirm what I think is beautiful in your conversation, um, then again, maybe by adding weight to your conversation or your thoughts or your words, then it might feel less adversarial in the conversation. Um, other than that, uh, I guess two other thoughts. Probably resist the desire to change the convictions of another. Um, there is just a strong desire in our like, binary culture to figure out how to get you to think what you're supposed to think or to change your mind and my perspective. And I just, I don't know that um, that's the way that we should work because uh, it seems to me even throughout the scriptures you see pictures of the disciples and the apostles. Jesus does this with the disciples all the time. They say like the stupidest stuff. And he doesn't just jump down their throat and go, you are an idiot, right? Instead, what he does is he, like, allows the spirit to move in their life in a way that, like, we read it five chapters later, which is a longer length of time. And then they're like, you are the son of God. Oh, my word, right? And it's like these moments of aha, right? And it's that aha that actually changes people. It isn't that you convince them of an argument in some way and then now like I won, I figured it out and you didn't and so now my idea is more important than yours. I think allowing the spirit to work, allowing people to come to their own convictions, their own aha moments about this uh, is part of what it means to extend uh, deep grace as well. You wanna add anything? Um. I would say that the idea of letting the spirit work is an active practice of relationships. And what I mean by that is you can always ask the question, how is this thing that you're experiencing or this idea you're thinking about, how is that moving you closer or farther away from God? Why? How is that working? Why do you think that matters, right? We don't have to be the arbiter of judgment for everybody. We can ask people to enter into a thoughtful reflection on how they're experiencing God. And in, I think that's probably what we're called to do more than anything else, right, is is that bringing you closer to God? Is that taking you away from God? How do you know? Um, and those are great, important questions to ask people and to always be, as people of the kingdom, of people that follow after Jesus, my heart is always to have people experience Jesus more. And so if I can ask them a question that leads them towards Jesus, that would be my hope and goal. Um, and me being disagreeable, which is too often the case, just really isn't very helpful properly. Good. Um, Brooke, let's go to the next. What does a strong sexual ethic look like for heterosexual and homosexual individuals? Uh, more direction and clarification around high sexual ethic. So I think the big idea is that. High sexual ethic. What does uh, it look like? So I was going to answer this one because Russ has been speaking about it. And so we thought we would try to see, hey, here's how we're all on board as a leadership team. The other reason why we're answering it here and we're moving towards thinking about some more theological issues is that... Um, we want to make this really clear, important distinction here, okay? So this question is asking um, really specifically about two identities. So to be a heterosexual person or to be a homosexual person, um, that is a question, and what would create that, define that, et cetera. But it's using those, then moving to this question of what does a high sexual ethic look like? And a high sexual ethic, um, this, a lot of the, my thinking here comes from someone named Stanley Arawas, but a high sexual ethic for the Christian person is a communal term. And what that means is our experience as sexual people should be in the advancement of the kingdom. 
meaning it should be a way that we reflect how to love and care for each other better, right? And we stumble and we fail in those areas just like we stumble and fail in other kinds of areas, right? And shame is not the primary motivating force for uh, change most of the time. The, the, the reasons we change our actions is because we feel and experience the grace and mercy and love of God and go, oh, that's a better way to live. So when it comes to a high sexual ethic, what we are talking about is pretty orthodox. It is uh, refraining from sexual activity prior to covenantal relationship of marriage, right? That seems to be the way the church has functioned um, for a long time. It seems to be the way that things tend to function pretty well. And um, barring some sort of divine intervention that changes our mind on this, that's probably where we're going to stand. And so the idea is to call everyone to this high sexual ethic. And the great thing about this perspective, at least from my view, would be that it includes all folks, right? So there are ways to live as single people in the kingdom of God. There are ways to live as married people in the, single, in the kingdom of God, as widowed people, um, as people that are in divorce or moving into remarriage. Um, but the, the sort of key idea here is that a high sexual ethic is one that calls the community into operating and functioning functioning in the best possible way so that people do not feel dismissed or begrudged or gossiped about or all these other things that come when you break relationship, right? So a high sexual ethic, um, I think we would have it remain having a pretty orthodox view about the characteristics of what that means. If we're getting really precise, we're asking this question, and that question is who gets to enter into monogamous covenantal relationships? And what we are suggesting is that we are at a place in our community's history and in our thinking as people that that feels, as, that feels like a space where uh, two men or two women could enter into um, uh, the covenant of marriage and live incredibly wonderful lives following after Jesus. That's good. Done. Next. Uh, if someone were to go to Russ, Kevin, or Julie asking questions of their own sexuality, what would they do? Would they forward them to a counselor? Uh, again, a fantastic question. Uh, it's started with the word if. I would not use the word if. I would say when. Um, and I would say when as in like for the entirety of my 25 years of pastoral ministry, uh, there probably has not been a year that has gone by that it's like not a when. Right? It's not like, if someday someone comes and has this conversation, then how are we going to handle it? It's been, so for my, in, the entirety of my ministry, um, junior high to middle school, or middle school into senior high, senior high into college ministry, college ministry to here, um, it's a continual thing. So I could tell you how I have approached it in the past. I have listened. Um, I have held uh, a space for people to um, just to share and be honest. I've been a safe space for that in the sense that that information based on a pastoral um, parishioner uh, kind of interaction means that never goes beyond me to anyone else. And so um, those conversations stay confidential. Uh, and then I try to meet the person where they're at. Uh, so to the young man who was in my office um, not long ago who said, hey, from the time I can remember being four years old, Five years old until now, I have only been desirous of being in a relationship with another male, uh, and I just held that space with him, listened to him, um, and then I asked him, what does he think the Spirit is calling him to? And uh, he said he thought the Spirit was calling him to celibacy, and I said, fantastic, then I will also be with you in that, and I will call you to celibacy too, 
until either you or the Spirit indicates to you, and you tell me that that isn't the case. And then I will call you into uh, what the Spirit is calling you into. Um, And I, I don't think it's ever our position or responsibility as people who listen and receive this to uh, counsel in such a way as to like definitively tell people um, the right or wrong on this particular thing, right? But rather to, to sit with them in that space and listen. Um, apart from that, uh, I would also say that people that I have had this conversation with in the past, uh, there have been many that have dealt with, uh, for lack of a better term, the burden of that um, feeling in part because uh, the church has, for some, maybe required them or they have felt that they had to check their personhood at the door before they could enter the church. And so uh, it has been a really difficult place for them. Um, Because it's been a difficult place, there have been a lot of people that I have interacted with Um, that are on varying degrees struggling with just even life itself because it feels so constrictive or they feel like they have no options for relationship or feel like they are being constantly judged or whatever, uh, that there are people um, that have considered ending their life. Uh, When those kind of situations come, I certainly refer out. Um, even though I know I can have that conversation and be in that space with someone. Uh, I think a trained professional like Michelle, uh, her husband, both psychologists in our, uh, in our community but in our city, um, we often refer uh, because I think uh, those conversations, uh, really talking about it over long term can be really helpful for people. Uh, so hopefully that answers the question. It, it's not an if, it's been an always, and that's how we've traditionally, or I have traditionally, um, dealt with it. You could ask Julie, she could explain to you how she has, and uh, it's very very similar, all right? Um, next. How safe do you consider it for today's church to turn its back on previous centuries of teaching? How did today's church get so much wiser? What would St. Augustine say? Fantastic question. Um, <laughs> I think both John and I will try to jump in on this one. Uh, there, uh, obviously, the question is asked in such a way as to say that there has been a traditional way that the church has viewed it. Even this morning, you could tell that St. Augustine and Clement of Alexandria uh, understood sections in Romans slightly different than um, uh, Chrysostom, right? St. John Chrysostom. So, you have throughout time these uh, pictures of how the church has understood it. And I think what's, what's uh, challenging for me uh, with this particular question is I don't think in any way that the church of today is saying that we are wiser. Uh, I would hope that's not the case, and I would even say, like, there is so much yet to be learned Um, I'm in about 25 years into pastoral ministry now, and I would say that on a regular basis, I tell this to John as one of the elders, Michelle, others, that I feel less and less like I know what I'm doing the further I go. So the more I know, the more I study, the more I research, the more I am in the text, the more I have pastoral interaction with it, like the more I realize how little I actually know. So we're not coming from a posture of we're wiser, we figured it out, and St. Augustine can take it and shove it, right? We're not going there. Um, that's not it at all. 
But I also think it's really important for us to understand that, um, so I will say this, St. Augustine had very clear teachings. He had very clear teachings. Uh, you put them in the confessions. They're very obvious teachings. I will give you a, one of his teachings as it relates to marriage. So Augustine said, there are only two ways to have sex as a male to a female that are considered holy or okay. Okay? One would be to have sex only for the purpose of procreation. If you are hopeful to have a child out of the sexual interaction, then thumbs up. Nobody is in sin. If you're doing it for any other reason than to have a child, so no protective sex, no just for the enjoyment of it, um, then that would be sin for Augustine. The only other way that he said it was possible for you to have sex outside of just procreation and be okay was this. If one partner desired to have sex just for the enjoyment of it, it would be wrong for them. But if the other had it out of duty to the relationship of marriage, because in 1 Corinthians it says, like, you know, your partner's body is your own, yada, yada, and so don't withhold. So if the one wants it but shouldn't, and the other gives in out of duty, the person that gave in out of duty was not in sin. The person that just kind of wanted to have sex with their husband um, probably then would be in sin, right? Does that make sense? Those are the only two. No other, no other legitimate way to interact physically with your spouse and not have sinned. If we want to go back to that church father's opinion and begin to like uphold that, you can see how it can get tricky pretty quick. Um, so no, we're not trying to be wiser, but we are trying to nuance it out and uh, figure it out and add to it. I just made a mum- jumbled mess, so maybe. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, here's how I'd answer that. Uh, When I was in college, there was a guy named Bible Jim who would come to Red Square at Western Washington (laughs) University, and he would hold up a sign, and it would have all of these uh, really rude terms about all the people that were going to the fires of hell. Um, And the great irony was when I was a new Christian, I was only on the list twice, and then when I got to know Jesus more, I showed up on it more, and I was like, this is, I'm, Bible Jim, I'm going the wrong way. and so, I, as I've said, I've, you can, I was the most uh, naive, I think I have the spirit of wanting to know Jesus, and so I would go, whenever he would come, I would stupidly spend the entire day in Red Square praying for people and talking with people, and just, and it wasn't going to make a difference, because this dude had a shtick, and he was going to hold up his big sign and all this stuff. Uh, but one year, there was this young man um, who I had seen... A couple days earlier, uh, eating lunch by himself in um, the Viking Commons, which overlooks the water. Um, and it's, it's this beautiful view, but there was this, watching him eat by himself, it wasn't like happy. It wasn't like this joyous thing he's looking out on the ocean. He was like alone and by himself. And so I just, it kind of hit me. I was like, man, there's a lot of lonely people. Um, and so I'm, a couple days later, Bible Jim comes with his incredibly thoughtful uh, hermeneutic. And... Um, He's shouting at everybody, and that young man comes running up, and he says, why do you hate me so much? And he's bawling and crying and weeping. Um, 
And at that point in life, I would have never thought that it was possible for a person that identified as homosexual to continue that lifestyle. Um, and this is not a story of me changing my view on that. This is my response to the word wiser. Um, and that young man was bawling and crying and yelling, and he ran off. And I remember God saying, chase after him. Mm. And I did. I just chased after him. I ran after him. Unfortunately, it was between classes, and I lost him. I couldn't figure out where he went. Um, and so then I went back to my room that night, and I was sitting there uh, talking with somebody about Bible Jim, and he said, you know what, John? I saw you chase after that guy. And, and you know what? I'm gay. And I'm so glad that there's people that will chase after other people. Mm. Somebody did that for me. So perhaps I'm being too, taking this too personally, but the notion of being wiser, um, I don't really think I'm getting much wiser. I don't think the world works that way. I think the world works like this. There is a table. People are invited to it. I no longer, as a person, feel comfortable determining who and who does not get a plate set for them. That's where I'm at. And that's what wiser... So I don't actually know how to do this. Also, Augustine said a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> Amen. Next, uh, next question. Uh, is the example of a eunuch given in the Imago Dei 2 sermon, or talk, a good precedent to apply to the LGBTQ lifestyle, and how does Romans 14 apply? Um, I think, is it a good one? Yes, I hope so, because next week I'm talking on Romans 14, and uh, I hope that it will apply really well. Um, I know that part of what generates this question, because of the uh, additional material that came in, but also because I think generally this is what generates, is if Paul says something pretty clear in Romans 1, why would he contradict what he says in Romans 14? by giving an illustration that maybe says you can hold different convictions about ideas. Uh, I don't think he actually did, is con, like um, going against his thinking in Romans 1. I think it's very in line with his thinking. And so I think the argument uh, for Romans 14, I hope, will hold up, and we'll find out next week because we're going to talk about Romans 14 and kind of how we need to sit in that space together as a community and continue to wrestle with, uh, your conviction might be different than mine. Because uh, the truth is, um, and we might get to it later, but uh, we all have different convictions and we have to hold them well because I think it's part of our responsibility uh, to follow God. Uh, but we can also hold them differently, right? Uh, let's keep going. Yeah. On uh, this one, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Uh, no, that's a great question. That's not what I'm implying uh, by that. Uh, I do think you probably have to um, sit with folks who would uh, say that they um, would take on the identity or would uh, recognize themselves as being gay. Uh, because I think uh, most of the conversations I have with people, uh, it is something I don't think they feel as if they have a choice in either. Um, that has been my overwhelming experience. I'm not to say that that's uh, always been the case, but overwhelmingly, 
Uh, that is. And again, I don't think that was what, maybe I'm wrong and that's what that was getting at, but uh, yes. I, yeah, I think that's where you have to have good conversations with people and ask them uh, where they're coming from. I also think it's important to maybe even, for those that might go, hey, it is a choice. It's obvious people made the choice. Um, I'll just speak from personal experience because I, I don't want to uh, speak this for any of you. I have no idea when I made that choice, personally. So it wasn't like when I turned seven, I was like, oh, I think it's girls. Or when I turned 14, or like there was never like, a, I didn't write that in my Bible, is the day like I decided, right? Like I just, it, it didn't, it just like, it was there, right? And I think for a lot of people, that is their experience too, but it's not everyone's, and I'm not going to speak for everyone, but that's just my, yeah, great, great clarifying question. Um, next. Uh, since a much stronger case for polygamy and polyamory can be made from the biblical texts, mostly Old Testament, are you affording the same status to people who practice those lifestyles as you afford homosexuals, or are they still in the issues category? If not, are you suggesting the church has the right to tell those people, uh, I think those being polygamy and polyamory, uh, who they can love but not homosexuals? Um, first off, I would say this. Uh, we have always been bad at fidelity. We've always been bad at staying in one relationship uh, throughout history, right? This is not a new reality. Um, but I tried to make really clear throughout talks one and two that we would hold or I would uh, believe that the Bible has a pretty narrowing ethic as it relates to sexuality. So what it communicates in the Old Testament uh, of like multiple, why, I mean, Solomon is your perfect example, right? Which is why he probably never brought it up in Ecclesiastes. You know, when you have 500 wives, 400 concubines, or whatever the numbers are, and like a thousand women, um, it's really probably hard to write much in Ecclesiastes about it, right? Because it, it, he's living into something that, and even if you go, well, I mean, God was kind of like poo pooed that idea, right? No, God said, at least the way we understand what the text is communicated, that Solomon went astray because he had foreign wives. Not because he had too many, he just picked the wrong ones, right? So you, it, you, the Bible's not necessarily building a case for why you shouldn't have, but what you see is a narrowing ethic because then it moves into uh, not adultery. It moves into this idea that uh, you shouldn't even just, it's not an issue of, actually having relationships, even if you're lusting after a woman. Like, it keeps getting narrower and narrower, and it moves towards monogamy. It moves towards then even the last word of the day on it really is celibacy. And then, so you just have this, like, continuing narrowing ethic the whole way through that if you read the Bible as static or if you read one part of it and then take that alone without the rest of the narrative, this is why narrative theology is so important. This is why a biblical theological framework is important. Then you're not getting the full picture. And so I think because of the narrowing ethic of uh, sexuality, um, you can't just say it's in Scripture because that's, as Rohr said this morning in the talk, it's meaningless, right? Because we can proof text anything. So the Bible's really clear on things like covenant, etc. I'll let you add more. I think this is a good time to clarify when we use the term narrative theology with the redemptive hermeneutic. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So uh, the easiest way for me to get my head around the idea of a narrative theology is to think about when I was younger and folks would say things to me like, 
well, the Old Testament is helpful, but we're governed by the New Covenant, right? And so the idea was that the story of Jesus moving forward was what we lived under now as Christians. And the Old Testament was kind of this other thing that you could look back to. Well, really, you could look back to the Ten Commandments when you wanted to if you wanted to get mad at somebody. Um, but narrative theology suggests that we have to understand the entire stretch of Scripture. Therefore, you have to be able to wrap your head around what is going on in the, New Te- in the Old Testament as it relates to the New Testament. Um, how is that story moving forward? If God is real and God is the same today, yesterday, and forever, uh, then I have to wrestle with what's going on. Um, uh, we've talked about this, I think, a number of times, but we often will give this the image of a circle and the idea of returning to the garden, right? So narrative theology suggests that we, we are dealing with a Hebrew tradition which is perfection in the beginning, and then the goal is to return to such a place, right? And so you have to account for all of that stuff that's going on. That's the narrative part. It tells an entire story. The, the redemptive hermeneutic is that in the, in the kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, we will be redeemed and we will be with our Lord. Therefore, not only does we, do we have to account for the whole story, we have to always be thinking about how are we moving towards living fully in the garden, right? And so when we think about issues like this, there's, this one is, uh, you know, polyamorous relationships are fun because they're on n- morning shows or something like this. But we could talk about a hundred million different sorts of issues that we have to ask ourselves, does this move us towards a redemptive ethic or does it move us away from one, right? So we spend a lot of time, uh, this is gonna be more, provo- this may be more provocative than talking about this stuff, um, this stuff. I can't even say sex in church, we're talking about <laughs> sex. And it's gonna get worse, and that's what it's, I'm looking yeah. forward to. It's yeah. just about ready, I'm looking at our notes, it's all getting ready to get worse for yeah, me, it is. is what I'm thinking. Um, so when we think about this stuff, we could ask ourselves, we spend a lot of time divvying out uh, answers to when is a just war? When is a just war? And that's a legitimate question for us to think about, but I don't think the answer to that is in redemption, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, we will be having conversations about war. Therefore, when we move into a redemptive way of thinking about scripture, we have to ask ourselves when our citizenship is complete, when, are we, when we are with our creator all the time, everywhere, what will that look like? And what it looks like with regards to sexual ethics is an ethic that says you do not harm other folks. And the ways that you harm other folks in the Christian story is by making them feel as if they are not a part of the community, not a part of the covenant, not a part of the table. Mm -hmm. And so any sexual ethic that would allow you to harm others by making them feel excluded, isolated, uh, set apart, those things aren't going to be with us when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Do you guys, is that making sense? So when we think about a sexual ethic, while it is fun to think about all the possibilities and then the prohibitions and all of these sorts of things, um, we have to ask ourselves the first question, which is would, would any of these sorts of things move us towards a community in which we are modeling what Jesus does for us? And one of the interesting things I might suggest to you is that fidelity and covenant are the primary metaphors for Jesus's relationship with his people, right? And we spend a lot of time thinking about questions like who can get divorced and who can't get divorced. I'm glad Jesus never had that conversation with the Father. Do you think I could divorce these people? Right? And so as we think about a a narrowing sexual ethic, we're talking about anything that allows us to maintain our commitments to each other, to live out the gospel, and to do it in such a way that doesn't create division or strife or anger or discouragement, yada, yada, yada. Perfect. Let's keep going. 
Um, we've got a few more to go, and then we're going to push some off to December 8th. Um, do you believe that God has always affirmed homosexual relationships, or has God progressed into a different place from the original creation story? Uh, this question, when I first read it, it is so layered uh, that it would take hours to, to kind of tease out, so I'm just going to give you a quick bullet points. Uh, first would be the question, what original creation story, right? So Genesis 1's version or Genesis 2, that would be my first question. Um, because we have to, like, define that first, right? Uh, so if God created uh, 100,000 people all at the same time in the first story um, versus the second story, then that changes maybe the way you would answer this particular question. So now you're going into creation and the whole story and the whole narrative and how did it all begin, and that's why I said refer back to Genesis 1. It's going to be on the podcast. Um, second, has God progressed? Doubtful, in part because God um, has the possibility of knowing all things all at the same time uh, in ways that we could never even comprehend. So for us to think in some way that he didn't know all the possible outcomes of the reality of our life uh, is doubtful. Uh, has God always affirmed? Total speculation. No way of knowing. Um, and so I, it's impossible really for me to even answer that question. So there's a lot more we could probably talk about in there, but I know, one, we're running out of time. Two, uh, we've got a few other things to really get into that I think um, people are curious about. Do you want to add anything to that or no? Okay, let's move on. Uh, these are all kind of the same question. Uh, what do you do with verses that seem to indicate homosexuality is a sin? Is it a sin? Uh, is acts and relationships a sin? Does new community view homosexual acts as a sin? Uh, and then it wasn't really clear in Imago Day 2 uh, there was a statement about attraction not being sinful, um, but it didn't seem like this was clear. Um, and then we don't want any ambiguity around this particular topic. So um, this is where, like John was just alluding to a moment ago, that things, this is where they get interesting, right? Um, so first off, uh, let me say this. I don't think you can really ask the question that way, Okay. I don't think you can ask the question, is homosexuality a sin? Because uh, to ask the question that way is to assume quite a few things in advance, okay? So I'll flip the question around to give you an example of what I mean by assuming quite a few things in advance. Um, let's ask this, is heterosexuality a sin? Now I'll let you take just a second to put into your mind what you think. Is heterosexuality a sin? Now, I'll just, just for the sake of playing along, let's assume you say, <laughs> duh, Russ, no, it's not, obviously. From the beginning of time, it seems like this was something that God was up to. So heterosexuality isn't a sin. Great. So let's talk about it for a second. Uh, would you say that if I was engaged in watching pornography and masturbating and enjoying the pleasure of that, that that would be a sin? I think a lot of people in our community would go, yeah, that seems to be a bit outside of what Jesus is getting after in Matthew. Okay. Uh, obviously, I'm not, what I'm viewing would be heterosexual acts. Okay? So that would be a sin. Second, if I said that um, I was, before we got married, I was engaging in sexual relations with my to-be wife eventually, uh, would that be, in your mind, in line with the teaching of Scripture. Some might say, well, I don't know. Others would say, no, that's clearly a sin. 
If I was engaging in, I'm in a married relationship now, and I was engaging in sex with someone other than my wife, right, I think most of you would say that fits into adultery, and therefore I would classify it as a sin. The list can go on. So if any of those would be classified as a sin in your mind, then answering the question, is heterosexuality a sin, you would have to say, maybe, sometimes. Sometimes it is, and sometimes in certain situations it isn't, right? So I would answer this same thing in, in this way. Uh, what you're talking about isn't homosexuality as much as you're talking about the act of sex. So now that we've, like, defined that we're really talking about the act, okay, now it brings up a whole other set of questions, okay? Jump in. Yeah, no, so um, a couple important things here. Um, we talked about the, so when we use the term homosexual, even if we're giving a very generous um, origin for that term, we're looking at something like the 16th century. So the idea of an identity being wrapped up in your sexual practice is not, that's a really modern sort of thing, right? So we have to be really careful here when we're looking at the scriptures to say we're talking about same-sex acts. So acts of sex between two men or two women, things like that. So that's really, really important for us to think about. And I want to lean right into this and say, because it is quite clear from the scriptures we read today that Paul has a very clear sense of what acts are, in fact, unnatural. Okay, so we're not going to... Um, I am a scholar first, like I'm not going to like shy away from any of that stuff, okay? But I want to point out one of the challenges that happens. So in the verses that we read today, prior to us talking about men committing indecent acts with one another, there is the verse about women saying they gave up their natural desires um, or some, their natural, it's actually natural use because mm -hmm. it, honestly it's a reference to the uterus, the use of their uterus for semen. Keep going, you're, you're doing um, great. <laughs> Someone asked me how my week was going. I was like, all I've been doing is reading Old Testament verses about semen, so not so great. Um, um, and, and I'd like to point out that we did say we've been thinking about this for five years, so it's five years of thinking about Old Testament verses about semen, so yep. not a ton of fun for me. Um, I'll, be, I'll be ready. <laughs> okay, so we, we have this notion of the... Um, did any of you read that book, The Da Vinci Code, right? Do you remember that book? Ooh, the woman has vessel. Exactly. That's what that was. That was a, the ancient world was the uterus is a vessel for semen. And so what's really interesting here is that most, most thinkers, and even if you go to what would be the regular use of the Greek terms, the, the passage there about women is simply that their orifices are not being used for the appropriate things, okay? And they are property. They are their women. Okay? The reason this is so important to understand is because we have altered that to say, see, look, women are engaging in lesbian activity just like men. Changing the first part makes the second part work. If you don't do that and you stay honest to what's going on there in the text, what you realize is that the property of men is being used in the wrong kinds of ways by Romans in all of these different practices that would have shocked um, Jewish believers. So, um, food orgies. Have you guys ever heard this term, right? This is a nice way of saying the sorts of dinner parties that would occur with Roman aristocracy. You would have a party, you would have all this lavish food, you would drink, you would eat, and then towards the end of the evening it would turn it into a physical orgy. So there would be people having sex with everybody else, right? That stands in such stark contradiction 
to the notion of table fellowship for a Hebrew person. I want you to think about that. The table for the Roman was a place where all kinds of attitudes and behaviors that did not bring us closer to Yahweh were occurring, as opposed to, how, how many of you have Jewish friends? Anyone have Jewish friends? Have you ever participated in any of their traditions around table fellowship? They're beautiful and incredible and amazing, and they certainly do not end in orgies over too much alcohol, right? So Paul has a very clear sense that these practices within the culture are disordered. They do not align with what we understand about the table and what it's for. And so when we look at those verses, we're talking about these, this property is not being used correctly, and that is unnatural. Then we get to the fun stuff about natural relations or men committing indecent acts with each other. <sighs> you have seed to spread to make your garden grow. And if you are not taking care of your garden in the appropriate ways, that is unnatural. So, semen goes into one space specifically. It makes babies. If it doesn't go in there, it doesn't make babies. And it's not part of the ordered world that God intended, right? And I want you to hear, I'm saying that deliberately. I know what I'm saying, okay? It's not part of the ordered creation because that's how Paul understands things. So, for all of you out there that may, don't know where I'm going with this, I'm going to flip this and say, so really the interesting question for most of us in this room is what are you doing on the weekends? Really the interesting question for most of us in the room is how do you think about childbearing or child rearing or the technologies associated with having children or what occurs to make a child? This is what this, this sort of narrative is about, right? And then if you go through, if you go to Leviticus, that's the great section about all the people you're not supposed to sleep with that you're related to. Mm -hmm. Um, all of those passages start with what is the property that you own and then how would you violate all of that property? And so all of these women are different sorts of property. So if you sleep with your uncle's wife, you have done a disservice to your uncle because you've taken their property. You have done something with their vessel that is not yours. And so it's this whole big long laundry list of things, right? Have you ever, want, have you ever wondered why there are prohibitions against bestiality? Probably not. <laughs> you probably haven't been sitting around thinking about this stuff. Because you can see semen. Have you ever noticed that only women in the scripture are barren? You know that that's not true, right? That sometimes it's the other stuff that doesn't work. There wasn't a whole lot of technology in the ancient world to measure those kinds of things, right? So the only thing that you could see was semen. And semen does what? Well, when it goes in the right place, it produces children. Huh. I wonder if you could get semen from other places. We get milk from other places. We get food from other places. What could we do, right? So there are all of these very interesting things in the Old Testament that we are completely removed from that would make no sense to us to even have to think about, okay? Not only that, Paul's writing to Rome. Does anyone know what the founding story of Rome is? Romulus and Remus, right? Who, who nurse at the teat of the wolf, so when Paul is understanding and seeing Rome, the image of Rome is this wolf with all of its uh, sort of uh, breast engorged and these two humans suckling at the teat of this wolf, right? So when Paul says in Romans, they gave themselves over to creatures and things like this, he's talking about this world that he's stepping into that makes no sense to him as a Jewish person, right? That there are all of these activities and practices that go off the rails from his perspective and he is trying to figure out what does it look like to get back to 
an ordered creation, right? Because remember what, what Russ said today, you can see the order of creation in the world. And what he means by that is you can see what it looks like to love and to care for each other and to live in ways that are appropriate. And y'all are just insane, right? What is, what's going on here, right? And so he is a- as confused as I am right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, and again, this is, you're seeing it throughout the Old Testament, right? So you, many of you might not recall, but there's the story of the man who's supposed to honor his um, brother's wife, right? So his brother died, and so he takes uh, the woman as his wife and is supposed to carry on the lineage of his brother. But he doesn't because the text says he pulls out, spills his semen on the side, wasting life as they understood it, And then his life is taken for his act of not continuing the family line because sex was procreative, right? That was its intention, which is why Augustine then has the position of you can only do it for this purpose. And so these things have to then be thought about in relation to, well, homosexual coupling. Uh, What does Romans 14 play into it and how does it? Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit next week. Um, but for us, at the end of the day, you have to be in relationship. Marriage has to look like covenant for life. Um, I mean, there's a lot more that we could go into, and again, we're uh, running out of time. But let me get to just a couple other quick questions that I think can wrap up our time, all right? A um, couple about uh, church stuff here, I think. And these are the uh, final, final ones. Um, do you... Now or will you in the future welcome openly gay individuals into the ranks of elders, pastors? John, you want to answer it or um, I th- you want I th- me to? I think this is one of those things where we'd say the answer is the question of being an elder in a community is that you demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, um, which are laid out for us, that you are someone that others feel is central to the community as evidenced by the growth and their participation in the discipleship and mentorship of multiple people across time. Um, so... If all of those boxes get checked, then we can have this question. But we don't let anybody just walk in and become leaders in the church. Like we just like, hey, welcome, you're in. Um, right. Good. Next one. Uh, would marriage be considered one of those sacraments that is included in for full participation? Uh, please clarify the idea of sacraments. So uh, for those of us uh, not familiar with kind of like church history as it relates to sacraments, there's about seven to ten different um, like actions that are sacramental. Uh, baptism, Eucharist, uh, confirmation, reconciliation, or this connection with God, uh, the anointing of the sick, marriage, holy orders, all of those are examples of uh, what would fit under uh, the idea of sacraments. Now, in our faith tradition, those we use different words for those. So we use like baby dedication, right, or um, versus confirmation, or we use uh, salvation, or we use communion, or baptism, or... Um, and so, yes, marriage is one of those sacraments. Marriage is one of the sacraments that would allow for full participation. So when we say everyone has the opportunity, according to their vic- convictions, to live into full participation, we mean all the sacraments, all right? Um, like two more. Should the church, uh, yes, affirm homosexual relationships, or should it seek only to accommodate them? Should the church promote homosexuality or should it stop at simply accepting those people who consider themselves homosexual? For instance, will you perform a homosexual weddings? This comes back to that, kind of that same question. So is it a sacrament for full participation? Yes. If it is, then will you? Uh, and this has been what we would say the, the way that we would answer this question. 
Uh, can you throw that previous slide up that you had? Good. Newcom recognizes the goodness of both singleness and marriage and seeks to uphold the commitments of singleness and the covenants of marriage within our community. We recognize the diverse range of interpretations on the purpose, meaning, and condition of marriage within a Christian church. Therefore, all at Newcom are free to participate in marriage ceremonies in accordance with their convictions. All right. Last but not least, uh, and then obviously if you've submitted other questions, uh, we'll take those on the 8th. We'll have um, a set of other questions that didn't make the list today. Uh, But the last one is... And it's really answered by this previous thing. Will Russ, Kevin, or Julie be marrying a same-sex couple or performing a... uh, Currently, no, because nobody is in line to um, be married. Uh, Second of all, there is an entire process for anyone. It doesn't matter who you are in the community. Uh, You have to be known. Um, You have to be in relationship with people in the community. You have to be engaged in the life of the church. Um, Then you would have to uh, ask about premarital or pre-engagement. So we encourage people to have the conversation even before they're engaged. Um, But then beyond that, if they do become engaged, we ask them to enter into um, premarital kind of mentoring. So then they have to be connected to a mentoring couple. Uh, That mentoring couple walks alongside them in preparation for marriage. We ask them to not cohabitate or not to be involved physically, sexually before their wedding. If they already are, we ask them to refrain until, uh, until the wedding day. Um, and then the mentoring couple, we place significant weight and responsibility on the mentoring couple. And what I mean by that is uh, if John and Sarah are doing mentoring uh, and they, the couple then asks me, hey, can, I, can you do the wedding? Here's the date. I would first say, I can't do anything until I verify with the mentoring couple. If the mentoring couple then says, we actually don't think you two coupling together is going to be the most ideal for you moving forward, then we, I let that couple know that, yeah, I, I'm not, I do not feel comfortable and I will not do it until the mentoring couple or we in community discuss and can kind of sign off on that. If you choose to go somewhere else and get married, that's fine, we can't, but for us personally, we can't move into that yet. Then, after that, they select a date. After that, they ask one of us if we would perform the wedding. And then, obviously, according to this, if, it, um, if they are checking off all those boxes, so to speak, and then they're free to participate in marriage ceremony in, in accordance with their convictions, and the staff would be free to perform those ceremonies in um, accordance with their convictions. Okay. That's where we're at today. It is already 1.15 uh, by the clock. Thank you for being here. Um, I w- will stay around for a little bit longer if you have questions, but if you have longer extenuating questions, we would ask that you would just submit those. Let me pray. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for participating in this. Uh, I know it's a lot of material, a lot of stuff that we went through, um, but I really um, admire your commitment to the conversation. Let's pray. God, uh, in all this, we want you to be honored. Um, We know that these are confusing and complex and challenging topics and questions and ideas, and uh, by no means is uh, our answers the full and exhaustive conclusion on anything. Uh, So we humbly offer them to you. We humbly offer them to this community, and we ask that you would continue to refine our thinking, give us grace to walk gently with each other and give us uh, hope 
that we can be the kinds of people that invite others into this beautiful kingdom, that we would make the table available to all, and that we would enjoy banqueting with you, God. Uh, Because, man, it's going to be glorious when that happens, and we pray, as we're told to pray in the scriptures, that you would come soon, that you would make that dream a reality sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, may we continue to disciple, and may we continue to call people toward the table and to love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great rest.